open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. In, in preparing for th- these messages in the, in the 24 hours series, uh, I literally laid out all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and tried to find th- this timeline. And others have done it before me, uh, just simply trying to, to lay out the, the details, the, the chronology uh, of Jesus' death. Um, as I've said in the early part of this series, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they sort of tell each of them in their own way. They tell the whole life of Christ, but, uh, but, but they really rush through the early parts. We have very little of Jesus as a child, uh, nothing at all in, in several of the Gospels. And then, of course, when they get to that final week of Jesus' life, Holy Week, what we call it, they slow down. Most of the Gospels, the, 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 the actual writing, the actual chapters, really pertain to the last week of Jesus' life. And then the last day, this last day, this story that we're telling over the weeks here, this is where the Gospels really lay their emphasis As I said this morning, though, they do not emphasize the physical sufferings in the way that sometimes we do, in the way that we sometimes picture and and draw out uh, the the actual physical sufferings of Jesus. The the Gospels just really don't do that. Now, the fact remains that crucifixion was was a brutally violent uh, way to die, and the Romans had perfected it as such. But for the most part, that is not what Scripture asks us to, to, to linger over. Somebody turn back to Lamentations chapter 1, verse 12. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, and we'll read that in just a moment. There's a man named Les Chevaladeoff. I think that's how you say his last name. Les Chevaladeoff. Who, uh, he plays Jesus in Orlando, Florida. There's a, a park called the Holy Land Experience. Anybody been there? The Holy Land experience is, is in Orlando. Uh, did you see Jesus? Uh, his name is Les Chevaladeoff. He's played Jesus now for years there. He, he's kind of a Jesus for our time. He has long flowing hair. He has six-pack abs just like the rest of us. Uh, he, he has six-pack abs uh, because he, of course, is, is shirtless for most of his, his day. He plays Jesus at the Holy Land experience. Les is an interesting man, and it's interesting to hear him talk about his job. He is a believer. He is a member of First Baptist Church there in, in Orlando, and he loves Jesus and takes very, very seriously his responsibility, his role of, of bringing Jesus' story to life six days a week, uh, six days a week in, in sunny Orlando. But he does have some, some, uh, some interesting issues that, that he deals with every day as a man who is who is acting out the part of Jesus, but also as a man who, who loves Jesus. He, he acts out all, all of the scenes of, of Holy Week. Uh, the, the soldiers, they, they spit on him, that they mock him. He is kicked and, and punched, and he drags the cross through the, uh, the, the, the part of the park that is supposed to look like the streets of Jerusalem. He is uh, crucified in, in, in a state-of-the-art way, hoisted by hydraulic jacks that are totally invisible. He hangs on the cross. It, it is gripping. It is moving. It, it is Orlando uh, bringing Jesus to life in, in the way that only, only we seem to be able to do it in, in our culture. It, it's powerful. It, it's a powerful moment. But Les says that, that even, even as he believes in everything that he's doing, even he has a little bit of trouble with his job in in this amusement park setting because as he uh, brings the cross as Jesus as he uh, moves down that street that's supposed to be Jerusalem he's walking past of course tourists families 
they're taking his picture. That there's some of them weep, some of them watch very intently, but they're also licking their milk and honey ice cream cone that you get at the concession stand right around the corner. And Les talks about that, that incredible sort of contradiction that, that he's acting out what, what truly is the most amazing story ever. And people take pictures and lick ice cream cones and, and weep all at the same time. I mentioned this this morning in reference to the Passion of the Christ, how it actually became an extraordinary popcorn movie. How are we supposed to respond to the cross of Christ? Uh, Lamentations chapter 1 verse 12, it's an amazing statement that comes out of a place of suffering. Somebody have that, read it in a loud voice. Lamentations chapter 1 verse 12. Yeah, it's just that amazing verse. And as I read through the Gospels, as I read this week in preparation for today, that's the verse that just kept coming into my mind. Does it mean anything to you, all of you who pass by? Look around and see if there's any suffering like mine. Yeah, truly those words could most accurately be voiced by Christ on the cross. Is it nothing to those of you who pass by? But I ask you again, how are we supposed to respond? This morning we looked at the emotional response of the daughters of Jerusalem and I said that Jesus didn't want their sympathy, he wanted their repentance. But but as we look at these 24 hours, how should we respond? In our culture it's very difficult for us to find that that, that place of response. What do you think? As I said this morning, often preachers have preached about the physical sufferings of Jesus, going into great detail about, about the, the cat of nine tails and, 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 and the brutality of, of, of crucifixion. Scripture doesn't do that because obviously that's not exactly the, the point. What is the point? Yeah, it is the sacrifice for for our sins. We have to have eyes to see more deeply into the crucifixion, more deeply into Christ's sacrifice for us. It's not simply a story about a man who who suffers. And his physical sufferings are are extraordinary in in our terms, but, but not necessarily extraordinary in a larger sense. Others have suffered physically in the way that Jesus suffered physically. Uh, let's read together from Matthew chapter 27. If you're following a timeline, we can pinpoint this hour. Jesus uh, is nailed to the cross at approximately what we would say is 9 a.m. It's now 9 a.m. in the morning, and, and, and this is how the story goes. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head and they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and grabbed a stick and struck him on the head with it. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. Along the way, they came across a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene. 
And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross, and they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. The soldiers gave him wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and, and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you're the son of God... Save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and we'll believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. In life, there are just certain, certain things that we rather not do ourselves, so we get somebody else to do our dirty work. Anybody got dirty work? Can, can, can you name something that you just as soon get someone else to do for you? Clean the toilet? Yeah. yeah. Do you have anybody that does that for you, Stephanie? No? Yeah. Teddy, yeah, dirty work. Somebody else, what's, what's the dirty work in your life? Pulling weeds, yeah, y'all, oh my goodness, I, I, it is so, I cannot get up and down these steps today. I pulled weeds yesterday, the back of my legs are so tight. I wish I had somebody to do that for me. Actually, I enjoy doing it. What else, what's dirty work? Yeah, Steve? Mucking, that's an interesting verb, out the stalls. Yeah, you don't have a lady that would do that for you? No. <laughs> you have, and that's why you don't do that. Yeah, 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 d d dirty work. Notice that, that in the story of the crucifixion, uh, there are a number of people who play a part, but the part they play is actually doing somebody else's dirty work. And, and you can see that especially in this passage here. Let's start with verses 27 through 30, and, and look at this nameless group of men that's simply called soldiers. Soldiers. Anybody ever been in the military? Tell us about soldiers. I don't know if they've changed that much through the centuries. What are soldiers like? They follow orders, William says. They follow orders. Yeah. What else? Go ahead. Enlighten us. They... They do what they're told. Yeah, in the military, it's a very rigid and orderly system of command, and soldiers do as they're told. Very important, very important. What else? What are soldiers like? Soldiers can be rough. Yeah, can you elaborate? You've been there, right?
Yeah, soldiers are bored. That's really interesting. But my father-in-law, who's a retired army colonel, uh, around the campfire when we camp, I always ask him, tell me about the military. Tell me about what's it like to go to war. And he always says, war is so boring. It's just so boring. He says, it is, it is days and days of absolute boredom broken up by moments of sheer terror. Yeah. Wow, I can't even imagine that. Days and days of absolute boredom broken up by moments of sheer terror. Yeah, but, but that boredom is important. And, and think about the boredom. Think about how when they get a certain job, it's an opportunity to entertain themselves, to break up the monotony. CSEVs, they're just rough guys. Yeah, and, and they often are rough guys and girls. Well, what else? They're in, they are under authority, but often they also have people under them. It's an interesting kind of relationship to be sandwiched in there. To have some authority. Now, in, in the Roman times, in Jesus' day, the, the Roman soldiers are typically low men on the totem pole. So who can they take authority over? The crowd, the, the people. And they absolutely did. And I've been talking about that the last two weeks. There actually were laws eventually passed to protect the people, the peasants, from the Roman soldiers. Because they tended to, to begin to have a little bit of a heavy hand in their capacity to order people around. And you see that here with Simon of Cyrene. We'll get back to that in a moment. We don't know a whole lot about Roman soldiers, but we're beginning to know a lot. If you're very interested in biblical times, in New Testament times, and want a really easy but fascinating book to read, look for a book called Life in Year One. Life in Year One. It's a wonderful book. If you're a Sunday school teacher or anybody that just loves scripture and backgrounds, Find the book Life in Year One. came out last year. It's an amazing book and very, very factual and accurate in its depiction of life in Jesus' day. And the author actually talks a good bit about what it was like to be a Roman soldier. The Roman Empire, of course, was covering the world, covering the land. But Israel was particularly difficult because the Jews wouldn't assimilate. In every other place that the Roman Empire could conquer, they would just simply take over the people and make them Romans. But the Jews resisted that. Now, what would it be about the Jews that would make them resist giving up their their identity? Absolutely. They're God's chosen people. So the fact that, number one, the Jews are monotheistic. What do I mean by that? There's just one God. That there's just one God. Anywhere else the Roman Empire would take over, it was simple just to push in the Roman gods because typically they already worshipped a number of gods. So adding more gods was just simply not a leap. But the Jewish people believed in one God, their God, and they were his chosen people. So the Jews did not assimilate well into the Roman Empire. And so it was very, very difficult to govern Israel, to govern the Jews. They simply would not become good Romans. So understand, Pontius Pilate, the governor, had a horrible job. The Jews hated him, and he hated them. The Roman soldiers are are all Gentiles. Jews just simply did not enlist. And the Roman army was was predominantly volunteers that they would enlist. So we have these volunteers. They are Gentiles. They're Romans. They despise the Jews, and the Jews despise them. 
They are typically from the lower class, and they don't make much money at all. Roman soldiers weren't in it for the money. They were in it for, for the glory, the, the glory of Rome, and they were indoctrinated to, to, to want to, to die for Rome, for the glory of the emperor, for the, for, for the glory of Rome. So you have these men, uh, rough men, they, they come from uh, poor backgrounds, uh, they enlist for the glory of Rome and they're stationed in Israel where they are hated and for that matter they hate the people right back. One of the ways that, that the, the Romans tried to, to, to conquer and rule Israel was by threatening, by intimidating them and crucifixion was absolutely a part of that. Crucifixion was by design intended to make people never want to cross Rome. As, as I said this morning, they crucified so many people. They crucified so many people. Hundreds, sometimes thousands in a day. You just got to understand and let that sink in. However, we've only found one, one skeletal remains of a crucified man. Only one. But, but we have found one place, one body that was buried uh, that obviously was a crucified man. Why do you think there aren't, if they, if they crucified so many hundreds, thousands of people, where are all of those bodies? Why don't we have th those remains to study and learn more about crucifixion? What, what do you think? Yeah, Andrew? Yeah, it was part of the humiliation of crucifixion. You would never be buried. The fact that Jesus' body was taken down and the fact that he was given a tomb is remarkable. That never happened. It was part of the shame of crucifixion, knowing you would never, ever be buried. So what happened to your remains? Yeah, yeah, literally, the bodies just fell apart. Of course, it, it, of course the smell was horrible. Of course it was detestable to look at. And for the most part, they say that sometimes the dogs began to come and feed on the bodies even before the bodies were dead. The birds, the dogs would just come and flock and feed on those remains. We have one body from all of antiquity of, of a crucified man, and those remains are very, very interesting. Which brings us to verses 27 through 30, the, the soldiers. They bring Jesus into their headquarters. They strip him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now what's happening here? They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head and they placed a reed stick in his hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him, grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. What's happening there? Yeah, they're amusing themselves. They are amusing themselves. When you see a scene like that, I don't want to bring up anything political. I'm not making any kind of statements. But this is something like the pictures we saw from Abu Ghraib. Remember that? The kinds of things where you've seen where the soldiers were urinating on the dead bodies. Understand, these soldiers are brutal, coarse men. And this mocking is simply about entertaining themselves. This mocking is simply about humiliating, brutalizing a man. Now, what are they doing? On the one hand, they're just following orders. They're just following orders. They have been commanded to execute this man. They crucify and execute men on a daily basis. And we do know from records in antiquity that the Roman soldiers got pretty creative. 
they would actually find humorous ways to nail people to crosses just to be funny, just to humiliate them more. They would, they would nail them, they would, they would pose them, they would uh, nail them to the trees in the most grotesque or, or, or humorous ways to themselves. They wanted to mock, they wanted to be brutal, and they're brutalizing Jesus. Apparently his charge is that he's some sort of king, and so they just make a, a big show of that. that They brutalize him uh, and, and mock him as being a king. You mustn't make this something pretty. In all of the paintings, Jesus is shown with this very artful crown of thorns. It would not have been an artful crown of thorns. Some rough old redneck soldier just got a, th- this tangle of thorns and shoved them on his head. They weren't making a picture, you understand? They're just tormenting him. It wasn't some sort of beautiful scarlet robe like we'd have in the Easter program. This is some old red rag, somebody's bath mat. You understand? It's something they found. It's just a way to improvise and make fun of him. They're soldiers. But understand, they're following orders. These are men who would be somebody's husband, perhaps, somebody's son, they would not have even considered doing this sort of thing, perhaps, in, in any other context. It's, it's amazing how that mentality takes over, and they simply brutalize him. I talked about dirty work. Understand, they're doing Rome's dirty work. They didn't choose this. This is, is their job, and, and so they are, they're doing their job. Verse 32, along the way they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene, And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Why would they force another man to carry Jesus' cross? Because they don't want to do it. And what else? Why can't Jesus carry it himself? He's apparently not able. And we do know that this is absolutely part of crucifixion. It wasn't always the entire cross. Lots of times it was just the cross beam. The beam that their arms would be tied or, or, or nailed to, they were often forced to carry that the distance to the cross. Sometimes the, the actual vertical beam stayed right there in the ground. They just would reuse those, you understand? But the cross beam itself was often something that the executed man would have to carry. Now, commonly done. But Jesus apparently is not able to do that. So a man is yanked out of the crowd by the soldiers. His name is Simon, who is from Cyrene. Where is Cyrene? If you were to find it on a map today, what country would you be in? Yeah, it's part of Africa. Yeah, it's Libya. Yeah, it's actually Libya. So Simon is is an African man. Where did he come from? What's he doing there? Gospel of Luke said he had just kind of come out of the countryside. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He's just one of those who might be there for, for the Passover, uh, a religious Jew. We know that there has, has been a Jewish community in Libya, in, in Cyrene, for centuries. So, so Simon comes from, from that group that, that would have lived there. He's probably a faithful Jew, probably in Jerusalem for the holiday. He gets pulled into this story to, to do somebody else's dirty work. In this case, it's, it's, it's to carry Jesus's, Jesus's cross. What do you think about Simon? Is he a good model for for a disciple? Is he some sort of example for us as believers, as Christians? Talk about Simon with me for a moment. How do you interpret his part in this story? He 
Yeah, he absolutely did. Let's stop and talk about that for a moment. Turn over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Mark, chapter 15, verse 21. Same story, telling the same details, but, but they, Mark includes something else. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Not like Rufus and Chaka Khan, but, but this is Alexander and Rufus, the, uh, the, the sons of, of Simon. Now, why would Mark stop and mention their names? I've talked about this before. It's just a, a basic principle in, in reading the New, the New Testament. When the Gospels mention somebody's name, what does that typically suggest? Yeah, if Mark stops and says, you know, this is the father of Alexander and Rufus, then, then he's probably assuming that people know Alexander and Rufus, which means the sons of Simon most likely became believers and had a place in the early church. He mentions their names because people are going to know them. Flip back now to the book of Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16 has that long list of, of early believers as Paul greets, greets people and sends messages back and forth. Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Notice who he greets. Greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own. That's a really interesting way of designating somebody. Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to, to be his very own. Alexander and Rufus, more than likely, uh, well-known members of the early church. We don't know if Simon of Cyrene ever became a follower of Jesus. We just know that he carried Jesus' cross. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him take up his cross and, and, and follow me. I'm asking you again, is Simon any kind of model or example for us? Nancy suggests he was willing to carry Jesus' cross. What do you say, Steve? I think there's a, there's a passage in here that explains that a Roman soldier can commandeer anyone to carry his pack for a mile. Yeah. So they may have just recruited. Yeah, we talked about that. The Roman soldiers, it, it, again, there was, there was a law called the Roman Impressment Law. They literally could make anybody do anything, and the, the law said for a mile. So they could force him to carry it a mile. So it comes down to that word willing, Nancy. Is he willing? Does he have a choice in this? He did do it, but did he have a choice? But Billy. Yeah, he, he didn't volunteer for this. He's, he's literally plucked out. His life is interrupted for a moment, and he becomes a part of, a, of an amazing, amazing story. Yeah, Donna. It makes you wonder if, like the thing in Orlando, you know, what if this guy is, is, is going on in Orlando and somebody's there as a tourist, and, and they just get jerked out, you know, by somebody in authority and made to do that? Yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, he, he literally is a, is, a, is a face in the crowd who, who becomes a, a, a part of this story. I guess I would say he's, he's not any kind of model for us because he does not willingly to take up the cross. Now, again, as Nancy says, he, he, he does it and he doesn't seem to resist, but I guess we could argue that he has no power to resist. The Roman soldiers can make him do this, and apparently they do. In order to be a believer, you have to voluntarily take up your cross. We do have a choice to make. In order to be a Christian, you do have to willingly take up your cross and follow after Jesus. But, but you can't force faith. You can't coerce genuine discipleship. This has to be something that, that you choose. And whether or not Simon ever eventually chooses to follow Jesus, we don't know, but apparently his sons did, and that makes me think that perhaps Simon also comes to some sort of genuine faith. Uh, one more thing, Claude would love this. Claude, do you understand that, that we have found, they found the tomb of Simon of Cyrene and his sons? It really is found in Israel, and they're very, fairly certain that, that it's this man and his family. They found the tomb of Simon of Cyrene. Uh, yeah, Claude, I would have expected you to tell me that tonight. Yeah, we're really rather certain that it's Simon of Cyrene and his son Alexander. We found their burial places, and that's just interesting to me. remain a mystery, Claude. It, uh, scripture just says it was the fullness of time uh, and, and just the mystery of the incarnation. Why the Jewish people? You know, why the Roman Empire? Why in year one? Why a, a cross as the means of death? It, it, it's, it's just the mystery of God's plan. Uh, I don't know if there, there are any answers forthcoming. Uh, it's, it's, it's the wonder of, of God's plan of salvation for us. Which brings us to the last part of the scripture, and, and, and with this we'll close. I just want to call your attention to the mocking. I know that it's mocking, and I know that they don't mean any of this, but in a very curious and ironic way, it is almost as if the entire gospel is expressed in their mocking. Listen to what they say. Start with me in verse 40. I'm back in Matthew chapter 27. Look at you now, they're talking to Jesus, look at you now, if, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, say these words, save yourself. This is their mocking. This is the phrase that keeps coming back and back, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed. But he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. 
For he said, I am the son of God. And even the revolutionaries mocked him in the same way. I say you, you, can, you can nearly find the entire gospel in their mocking. What do I mean by that? What is the irony of the way they mock him? What kinds of things do they say? Yeah, you said that you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. What was Jesus talking about when he said that? What was the temple? Yeah, the temple of his body. So even right here at the crucifixion, they mock him with his own words, but his words were actually a description of of his death and resurrection. It's right there. You said if we destroyed the temple, you'd rebuild it in three days. They're mocking him. What else do they say? Yeah, you saved other people. They mean that as a joke. They don't mean that. You saved others. Save yourself. Come off of that cross and we'll believe in you. Save yourself. Yeah, they keep coming back to that. You said you're the son of God. Let God rescue you if he wants you. Yeah, Adrian. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. He did not come to save himself. He came to save others. Yeah, he is the son of God, and God will rescue him. God will raise him from the dead. Even in their mocking, they speak truths that they don't even understand. It's amazing. You saved others, save yourself. He, he just didn't come to save himself. Yeah, Claude, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, Claude reminds us when he was tempted by Satan, tempted Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. It's that same idea. Uh, Since you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, then then do something for yourself. Yeah, and it's exactly the temptation that Jesus always resisted. He he didn't come for himself. Any final thoughts, anything else, J.C.? Yeah. Yeah, the greatest display of his power, I would say, is his restraint. Yeah, that he would endure uh, and and suffer in this way. He could have called 10,000 angels. Yeah. And yet he chooses to suffer. Why does he do that? Yeah, love for us to save us. We'll continue. Next Sunday morning, we, we will pick up right here with Jesus on the cross. We'll pick up with the two thieves. And again, we are, we are making our way uh, through these last 24 hours and, and making our way to Easter celebration. Um, God bless you all. Any final words before we dismiss? Anything? Is there another song, Andrew? Is there one planned? Okay, well, let's, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. In Christ alone, yeah, how, how wonderful. Let's stand together. Let, let's sing one last song of worship and praise to the Lord.